Thank you. As we approach Christmas, we have uh, a series of three sermons. And they are called um, canticles. Lucan means it comes from the Gospel of Luke. Okay, It's meant to confuse. Lucan canticles and three sermons based on uh, the first two chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. And canticle comes from uh, a, a Latin word which means a hymn or a song um, from the Bible, usually outside of the Psalms because otherwise there'll be a hundred over uh, canticles. So three songs based on the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1 and 2. And the first one, which we're going to tackle this morning, this afternoon, is uh, Mary's Magnificat. The second one next week, uh, our brother Kapo will handle that, is uh, Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And he gave a benediction. And so in Latin, is benedictus. And his words were, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So we'll tackle that next week. And then the following week, I'll come back. And there is this old man called Simeon who carried the Christ child and he nung Demetrius and he says, now you dismiss, which means I can die now. I have seen the Christ child. So these are the three sermons we'll be tackling uh, from today. Let's have a quiz now. What kind of songs are sung at Christmas? Carols, right? So everybody knows that. Next question is, in what language were they originally sung? Latin. Um, they were sung only by the clergy of the church, the priests in the church. But following the Protestant Reformation, and this is the year, uh, 2017, the 500 years after Martin Luther uh, reformed the church, and the reformers believed that carols ought to be sung by everyone in the vernacular, in the language of the day, not necessarily only in Latin and not necessarily only by the priests. So we've got to bring it back to the people. And, and this was a very revolutionary thought in, uh, in its days. Okay, another quiz. What was the world's first carol? Well, some of you might say it depends. Depends whether you mean the melody, the music, or the lyrics, or the language? Is it English? Is it Latin? Is it even Hebrew? Well, some people say that biblically, the first carol was sung by angels. Remember when uh, the, the shepherds were gathered around, the angels appeared to them, and then they sang in excelsis deo, remember? Not exactly that melody, but those words, if it were in, in Latin, Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. That was what the angels declared. And so is that the first carol? However, some people argue that the first carol was sung by Don Moen because he sang or he wrote, Be it unto me, be it unto me according to his word. Because that appeared in Luke chapter 1. Gloria in Excelsis Deo appeared in Luke chapter 2. So it's earlier, before the angels met the shepherd, these words were declared by Mary. Be it unto me according to your words. And, and now I've got to tell you this. Huh? I have a, a niece who's now six years old. Four years ago, 
when my sister was driving in her car and she popped in Don Moen in the CD player, and when my niece, who was at that time two years old, heard Don Moen singing, she said, Choo Choo singing. Choo Choo miss me. Wow, I think I miss my calling. <laughs> but she was two years old. She was only two years old. So let's get the sequence correct, right? The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary first and said that she would give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. And then at that time, Mary said, Be it unto me according to your word. And the angel also told Mary that her cousin, uh, Elizabeth, who would have a child in her older age because she was barren for a long time, and that your cousin Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. And then Mary said, Be it unto me according to your word. Uh, not quite in Don Moan's tune, but she said that. And then she hurried to Elizabeth, and when they met, I think they did this. Uh, they held hands as uh, ladies like to do, and then they jump up and down. Then they say, Oh my God! Oh my God! Right? Because one of them, but both of them, uh, were pregnant. And then at that time, Elizabeth felt the baby do a somersault in the tummy. And then she prophetically declared that Mary, the mother of my Lord. Right? So that's the, the Christmas story. And then I believe came the first Carol Alva in world history, Mary's song, the Magnificat, known as the Magnificat in, uh, in Luke chapter 1. Let me just read that. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The Magnificat comes from the first Latin word of this passage, which means magnify. And this passage, I, I remember some years ago, um, my pastor from uh, Hong Kong, younger than me, but very, very learned guy, well, of course with PhDs, and, and his library is the best Christian library of any single person that I know. Um, and he came, I remember he was just standing behind there, and somebody was preaching or going to preach on the Magnificat, on the PPH stage. And then he said to me, Kokfai, Let's see if this preacher uliawo. Let's see if this preacher has substance. I said, what do you mean? He said, any preacher who tackles Mary's Magnificat must refer to a parallel passage in the Old Testament. Which one? 1 Samuel chapter 1, when Hannah was with child and giving birth to the prophet Samuel. So I quickly shot up a prayer. I said, please, sir, please, sir, let the preacher I invited to PPH be a preacher of substance. And then, he mentioned Hannah's prayer. I said, ah, Hannah. So, by virtue of this uh, short anecdote and uh, this unreadable slide that I have now also mentioned Hannah's song, and therefore I have proven myself a preacher of substance. But 
really, what else have people said about Mary's Magnificat other than it's parallel with uh, Hannah's passage in uh, 1 Samuel 1? There's a very famous preacher and pastor, E. Stanley Jones, and he said that the Mary's Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. Um, William Barclay, uh, who has written many commentaries on the Bible, again, another theologian, said that the Magnificat is a bombshell. There is loveliness in the Magnificat, but in that loveliness, there is dynamite. Christianity begets a revolution in each man and revolution in the world. That's what's been said. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, said that the Magnificat comforts the lowly, but it terrifies the rich. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German theologian who was killed um, in World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this before he was executed by the Nazis. He said, The Song of Mary is Advanced's oldest hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. I was surprised when I found this, found out about this. But just what is so revolutionary about this Mary's Magnificat? That it was from a single, simple, female teenager. I think that is revolutionary in its, in its days in Hebrew society. That much Mary knew about, about herself, and she began with it, I am a servant from a humble, one of a humble estate, and she knew what she was not. I believe she was quite sure that she was not immaculately conceived, which is a term uh, for Jesus, that Jesus was not born of man and woman sexual relationship. He was from the Holy Spirit. But she knew that her child, because she hadn't had relations with a man, that her child was immaculately conceived. I believe she would never, never have thought that one day she would be worshipped as co-redemptrix. That means she's co-saviour with Jesus at the, at the same level uh, which some uh, people have uh, advocated theologically. She knows that she was not co-saviour. And I think she would have turned over in her grave if she had known that someday people would make an assumption about the assumption of Mary. And what, is that? what does that mean? The assumption means that Mary did not pass through death, that Mary just went straight from earth to heaven, like Jesus did, like Enoch, like Elijah, that she was bodily assumed into heaven. That's why the term assumption. And these are the things that Mary was not, is not. But what is so revolutionary about the song? In fact, what do these three countries have in common? Guatemala, India, Argentina. You know that at one point in their history, the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat was banned in these three countries. In the 1980s, Guatemalan pol police arrested people who recited the Magnificat in public because it was an, an, an incitement to rebellion and it was a danger to the state. Of course, it was in the heydays of liberation theology in uh, Central and South America in those days where people used the gospel story to incite people and they combined the communism to overturn the state. Okay? In Argentina, during the Civil War, children disappeared. And so the grieving mothers, they were called the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, 
came to this place called the Plaza de Mayo, and they displayed the words of the Magnificat there. And the military government of these days outlawed any display of the Magnificat. During the British rule in India not so long ago, the singing of the Magnificat in church was prohibited because of, they say, its purportedly incendiary, fiery uh, lyrics that you will terrify the rich and all that. My, I've not been able to verify this yet, but I found it in several places on the internet that on the final day of the British rule in India, Gandhi, who admired uh, the teachings of Jesus, but who was himself not a Christian, requested that this song, Mary's Magnificat, be read in all the places as they were lowering the British flag. And so it was William Barclay, that uh, commentary writer and theologian, proclaimed that there were three revolutions in the Magnificat. First of all, it was a moral revolution. I'll expand more on that later. Secondly, that the Magnificat was a social revolution that brings down the mighty from their thrones and those who think themselves better than others in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that God will exalt and bestow favour those, on those who are of humble estate. It was Jesus, the social revolutionary, who broke all the social norms when he treated women, lepers, prostitutes, rich tax collectors the same way, with grace and love. When he knelt down to wash his disciples' dirty feet like a slave, when, and he broke every rule when he thought that the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. And when he thought that if, for you who want to be great, you must be the servant of all, that you should not judge a man by his social status. And that's the social revolution of Jesus' message. So the moral revolution, the social revolution, and then thirdly, it's an economic uh, revolution. That's what Barclay said, that, that God will fill the hungry with good things and the rich He will send away empty, verse 53. You see, a non-Christian society by, by its very nature is an acquisitive society that each man is out to get as much as he can and to block the other people from getting it, to amass as much as we can get. But the teachings of Christ if it were to be lived out in society, a Christian society is a society where no man dares to have too much while the other person has too little. Where every man gets only to give away. Where it is more blessed to give than to receive. And where the love of money and the love of possessions is the root of all kinds of of evil. And that's the economic revolution. And so, it's no wonder that corrupt generals and power-hungry bureaucrats and, and filthy rich tycoons fear the revolutionary principles of Mary's Magnificat. Okay, granted that the Magnificat has been sometimes wrongly used for such social or economic uh, uh, revolution. I don't want to address that this morning. I want to address the Magnificat from the angle of a moral and, might I say, a religious revolution. So let me suggest that there is a fourth revolution, and it is a religious revolution, that God would choose an obedient young woman of humble estate, Luke 1, verse 47, and an obedient carpenter. 
and that they would obey God amidst that scandalous um, gossip that this might be an illegitimate, illegitimate child. And it wasn't Christmas card-like at all that an unwed, pregnant, young girl, olive-skinned, almost like an Arab, in a smelly, flea-infested feeding trough that was for the cows and the goats. It was a thoroughly irreligious, non-Christmas card setting. And where Mary, as a young teenager, spoke the longest recorded words of any girl in the New Testament, in a prophetic utterance, as it were. And she sang what might be called the first gospel song. She sang what might be the first carol, and she was this revolutionary. What is the first word of the Magnificat? Magnificat. Okay, what does it mean? Um, Magnificat is in Latin. Megaluno is in Greek, where the New Testament was written. Unfortunately, when you see the word megaluno, you think of megalomaniac. And it's where it comes from also. And no one trumps this word better than Trump, right? Who wants to make America great again. Maga, maga. And I came across this quotation, which is so good. In the early days of the American Republic, there was this French philosopher who went to America. His name is Alexis de Tocqueville. And he says, America is great because America is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And there's so, so much wisdom in that and how true it is in this day and age. But there is another shade to the meaning of this Greek word megaluno. It is to make conspicuous. Make conspicuous that Christ's coming brings about a conspicuous change to people's lives. A, a conspicuous revolution in his followers. Conspicuously moral, conspicuously social, con conspicuously economic, conspicuously religious. Well, you and I know that the Magnificat is not banned in Singapore, certainly not banned in the churches, but perhaps something worse has happened to it. Could it be that we've given it this dreamy, cuddly, Christmas card-like interpretation that makes it a form of godliness but denying its power? And what is it that we must make conspicuous. This faith that we proclaim, that we believe in, how is it supposed to be, to be lifted out? How is it supposed to be made conspicuous in my life, in your life? So we need to distinguish between religious and religious. The noun is religiosity. It is be, it's defined as being excessively or obstrusively or sentimentally religious and, and, and a sanctimonious kind of religion, which is, I pretend to be morally better than you. I am morally superior than other people. It is the kind of religion that has a form of godliness but deny its power. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, and the Bible says, avoid such people. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor, theologian, said this, Charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. And it looks an exact paraphrase of James chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, uh, a Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Charity, good works, but purity, unstained from the world, undefiled. 
And so while we may do a lot of charity, we may visit people and give tuition and all that, but are we ignoring this call to purity, to keep ourselves undefiled and unstained from the world? So what can we learn from Mary's Magnificat? I think the first lesson to, be, to, to learn is the need to be humble. In verse 48, where Mary describes the humble estate of his servant, and verses, verse 51, the proud thoughts in our hearts. In other words, the religious, whose humility is just an outward show. It is a religious humility and not a religious humility. What is very lacking is just the fear of God. The fear of God. You know, sometimes when I get involved in, in disputes and trying to arbitrate or adjudicate, and, and this, there will be that cross artillery fire. And after a while, you begin to wonder, where is God in all this? There is no fear of God. There is nothing. It's just, I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm all out to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And there isn't the fear of God anymore. He's not even in the picture at all. And I can't help but think of, of, of the whole life inventory results again. You know, it's like keeping me awake. I, I look at it all the time and I'm asking, are we humble? Are we humble when we say that we don't need help in our marriages, we don't need help in discipleship, we don't need help in parenting, and our percentages of those who say we don't need help are much higher, significantly higher than those of other churches? Maybe it's because in our mind, no one is good enough to help us. Like, there is no person who is holy enough to disciple me. And that is that, I, I show you this chart again, right? and I've stripped away the, the numbers from the Chinese assembly, uh, and it actually makes the numbers look worse. At the bottom line, the bottom one is 31% of us, or 31% of the 249 who took this survey says that I'm not being discipled and I do not wish to be discipled. So I've named them touch-me-nots. Versus 15%, from other churches. So we are double, more than double. And it cannot be that our English is poorer so that we read the question wrongly and there was uh, some error in that because if you look at our demographics, our educational qualification is way higher than the general uh, Christian population. But if you look at uh, the seniors, which means me next year, okay, now I'm still not yet senior. 57% of us says, okay, no need, no need. Huh? I'm not being discipled, but no need. But then you compare it with 36% from other churches, uh, equally senior, equally proficient in the English language or, or reading the same question. Uh, but I'm very glad that at the youth, uh, everybody wants to be discipled. Uh, single young adults, uh, only 10% says, don't touch me. Uh, but then if you look at all the other categories, okay, almost every single one, we are double the national average, right? For dating adults, single adults, married without kids, and parents, okay, parents with kids. Now, 45% of PPH parents with kids says, don't touch me, compared to 19% of other churches. So, it's something is up there. Something is up there that don't touch me, and this is a chart that keeps me awake at night. So, are we humble? In spite of the revelation from this uh, survey that we've done, 
of the pornography usage in this church and sex outside of marriage in this church that we refuse to turn to anybody for help or to confess. We rather live in denial. We rather live in deception that it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I can take care of it. I'll handle it. When the biblical injunction is to bring it into the light, bring it into the light, tell the truth and shame the devil, to confess sin to someone who will pray with you and who can help you. And as far as I know, and I've asked only deacons and elders, like since so many weeks ago, has anybody confidentially, don't need to tell me, has anybody approached you to say that, yes, I, I am addicted to pornography, or yes, I have had sex outside of marriage, would you pray with me? Would you bring me through this in an act of confession? And the answer is zero, not one case. Okay, there might be others who might have approached a cell group leader or a pastor outside of PPH. Uh, that's understandable. But zero as far as I know. That 12% of habitual pornography users, 12%, habitual means once a month or more. That 18% of addicts, which means once a week or more. Not, as far as I know, not a single one has come forward to ask for help. And it can be anonymous and confidential. I don't need to know the names, but I would be very encouraged if people would be willing to confess and work through this. So do I think that we are proud in the thoughts of our hearts? Maybe. Maybe, because we are not humble. Because we are saying, I'm okay, I'll take care of it. I'm okay. I can take care of it. But PPH, if there is sin, let's just acknowledge the sin. Jesus brought, brought about a moral revolution. It's not just about adultery, right? It's about the lust in our hearts and the lust in our eyes in pornography. It's not, it's not just an act of murder, but it's the murderous thoughts in our hearts. When we look at someone and say, you idiot. Raka. That's what Jesus says. Let's acknowledge our humble estate before Almighty God. If we cannot be humble, we cannot be hungry, we cannot be helped. There is no help for us. Secondly, we need to be hungry. He filled the hungry with good things. Verse 53. Are we hungry for good things? Are we hungry for the things of God? You know, one of the very few verses I can memorize is Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Can I say that if you are not willing to acknowledge sin, if you are not willing to be discipled, then we cannot be hungry. We cannot be hungry for the things of God. We are not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You know what C.S. Lewis, um, an English philosopher, uh, said, right? He says, either we say to God and acknowledge God, thy will be done, God, your will be done. Or if we do not, then God will turn around and tell you, thy will be done. Right? You want to do things your way, you want to live your life your own way, go ahead. Your will be done. And how sad that will be. When that happens, we've got to recraft Matthew 5, verse 6, recraft it to something like, how sad are the self-satisfied for they have no hunger for the things of God. D.L. Moody, uh, American pastor, said, the Bible will either keep you away from sin or sin will keep you away from the Bible. And I think sin will also keep you away from the things of God. And how true that is. Sin will keep us from the pursuit of holiness. We are stained 
defiled by the world if we are trapped in pornography, for example. Even if our wife and our children don't know about it, or even if our parents don't know about it, you know what internal spiritual credibility do we have when we take the five beats and we tell people about Jesus? When, as a parent, I want to teach my child about the things of God, and immediately a thought shoots into my head, you have no credibility. You have sinned, and you have not even tackled it. Then who do you think you are, you hypocrite? Those are the thoughts that will come and accuse us when we are defiled, when we are stained. Will not our sin continue to condemn us as hypocrites? You know, a young a youth pastor once told me this, that, that one of his counsellors told the youth pastor, a young counsellor told this youth pastor, that he was the only spiritual leader or spiritual influence in another younger youth's life, even though that younger youth had a Christian family. It's like in his family, there is nothing spiritual about it. The father, the mother don't really care about his spiritual condition. And how, what a damning statement that is, that this young, maybe 18-year-old youth counsellor is the only spiritual influence in that maybe 12 or 13-year-old uh, a boy or, or girl, and that the parents is not a factor in spiritual development at all. And so we need not just to be humble, hungry, but we need to be helped. As God helped His servant Israel, He too can help us, will help us, but we need to be humble and we need to be hungry. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that means remain, live with him, and I in him, he it is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But I think in so many instances, and in so many categories as far as this whole life inventory survey is concerned, from marriage to parenting to discipleship to habitual issues, we say, I can do everything. We need no help. And then I will say, help. Why is it that we feel we need no help when we need help? We had a diaconal meeting on the 16th of November this year, just a few days ago. Um, on the 17th, I woke up, and I never get this. It's like almost an audible voice. Now, I'm not sure if it is just because we were discussing these things at the diaconal meeting, and then, you know, it's kind of like working in my psyche and all that. It was an almost audible voice that I heard that it's not about growth and evangelism. It's not about all that or demographics and, and all that. It's about health. Health. If you are healthy, you will grow. If you are spiritually healthy, you will have spiritual growth. And so what does a healthy person do? A healthy person eats right. Right? We have the right food, the healthy food, the brown rice, horrible as it is. The right food means the right input of the Word of God. We read the, the prayer that we pray to God as well as listen to God and the fellowship among the believers where we are like iron sharpened iron, helping one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we need to examine ourselves. What goes in? What goes in? What kind of inputs are we getting? Who influences us? Images that we see on our computer or our mobile phone screens? Is that the heaviest influence in our lives? Who influences us? Some 
section of the Straits Times that's always talking about making more money and more money and I'm retiring at 35 and I've got one car and two houses. Is that what influences us? Do we allow people to speak into our lives? And I think I, I sort of discover the, the reason why so high a percentage of those who are older feel like we don't need to be discipled. It's like, yeah, I'm already 60 years old. Who can disciple me? Maybe a, a grey-haired 90-year-old man who's a super spiritual one. Because other than that, who are? You're no better than me. I think there's also this element of speaking into one another's lives. It's like, would I give permission to you to say, you watch my life, huh? uh, I, I, I want to be accountable to you, and would you then speak into my life? If there's something that I'm doing or some attitude that you feel is not right, uh, you're welcome to tell me. I think that is discipleship. I think that is, and not some great Moses character who stands with a staff and totally grey hair and great big beard to tell you off. It's not that. It's that humble attitude of someone who's just like you, who's able to tell you something and speak into your life. So a healthy person has right input, eats right. A healthy person also abstains from bad food. You know, our children now in school cannot have sugary drinks in, in the canteen anymore. Um, and yet, we as adults, what are we filling our lives with? Images, critical thoughts, worldly thoughts, worldly pursuits, or actually even worse, filling it with religiosity. On the outward, we look so holy and so religious, pretending to be morally superior than everybody else, judging everybody except ourselves. So a healthy person has right inputs, abstain from bad inputs, and a healthy person exercises. And I think some of us, we do religiously our 10,000 steps. Do you? And then if you cannot hit 10,000 steps, huh, you shake, shake, shake. Shake the thing until you see 10,000, right? We do that, but we also happily leave our spiritual muscles to atrophy. By spiritual exercise, what do I mean? When we read the Word and we obey it, we exercise. We exercise faith, we exercise our trust in that what God says is right and that it is good for us, no matter what the consequences. We obey and we do, and that builds spiritual muscles. And it's not easy. We know it's not easy. It's the same as physical exercise. And you know that muscles are built when there is resistance. And people go for resistance training, right? And you see uh, sprinters with this bungee tight behind him, and then they break out of the starting blocks. There is resistance. And and that is why I think a person in a persistent vegetative state or a person in a coma cannot build muscles. Okay, the physiotherapist will come and stretch the exercise to keep the, the, the muscles uh, supple and all that, but there is no building of muscles because there is no resistance. You're just like a vegetable uh, being stretched uh, in, in your muscles. But you need to build that spiritual muscle and that's where resistance training comes. And when we obey and we read, we obey, we see God at work. And our faith is built up so that we can obey some more. 
And someone said, all that I have seen teaches me to believe God for all that I have not seen. Right? The little bit that God, you read in the Word and say, yes, I'm going to obey this. Today, I'm going to be loving to someone. And then you go out and do an act of love and you build that little bit more. And you build that little bit more. But you're not super loving. You're not Mother Teresa yet. But it builds you up and that you can see all the possibilities. Recently, my uh, a relative told me that she was talking to this good friend of hers who was obese, quite big. And she said, I talk and I talk and I talk. I encourage her to stop eating unhealthy. I encourage her to exercise more, but she don't care. She says, I'm, I'm too busy. You know, you know my work, you know, as an accountant and all that. I work long hours. Eh? Where? I got time for exercise. There was just no hunger. Sorry, got hunger. Hunger for the wrong things. And it's, it's true, work long hours, therefore have junk food, and therefore it just goes down and down and down. There's no hunger for health even. Your own health, your own physical health. I don't care. I don't care. Of course, they are young now, right? Uh, and, and, and it doesn't really affect them. It doesn't affect their stamina yet, even though you're obese. But the day will come. No hunger. Don't care. No desire. So, Mary's Magnificat is to magnify. It is to glorify God. It is to make conspicuous the faith that we say we have. What is conspicuous could sadly be our lack of humility, our lack of hunger, and even our lack of a willingness to be helped. So, let's not be complacent. Let's not be complacent anymore. We should not be kidding ourselves if we are unhealthy, we are unhealthy. We are not morally superior. There was, uh, in 1997, uh, an American newspaper conducted a survey among 1,000 participants. And the question was asked, who will get to heaven? Will you get to heaven? And top of this list was one person. Who do you think it was? Top of the list. This person. You know, right? Mother Teresa. How many percent do you think? 79. 79% of those surveyed says that Mother Teresa will get to heaven. Is that good? Is that bad? Okay, here I need to make a correction, right? The survey, I think, was talking about, or people have the interpretation that it was moral excellence, right? Those who really, really serve people and they deserve to get into heaven. But you and I know that that is not the case, right? We go to heaven by faith. We go to heaven by grace. That Jesus, seeing as dirty and as filthy as we are, would cleanse us and would receive and accept us. That's what the five beats is all about. It's not about how good you are, right? But most people think about going to heaven because you're a good person. 79% thinks that Mother Teresa is good enough to go to heaven because of all the good works that she has done, not because she believes in Jesus. So, but there is a higher percentage than 79%. Higher than that. Who is this person? Actually, it is uh, 87%. 87% believes that this person will get to heaven. You. The respondent themselves. 87 of the 1,000 people uh, uh, surveyed says that they will get to heaven. Because thank you very much, I'm quite good. 
And that's where we are deluded. We are not humble. We are not hungry for the things of God. We don't think we need help because 87% couldn't have already one. So what is there need to be discipled or confessing and all that? No need. So I want to... I have a reaction to using this word called challenge. You know, so many preachers say, I challenge you today. I, I like to use the word encourage you today, but today I say I don't want to encourage. I want to challenge you. Live a life of holiness. If it's sin, call it sin. Get help. Hunger for it. And don't just think that 87%, I have a 0.87 chance of getting to heaven. That's not good enough. Right. And so I want to end with reading this very scary passage from the Bible that Jesus talked about as we asked the music team to come and help us with the closing song. And you listen carefully to this to this scary passage, which is found in Matthew chapter 7. And listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then, I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Hear the word, do it. Obedience. How to do it? By God's help, by His grace, and not by our strength because we know we can't. And so, brothers and sisters, have we somehow made God too small in our eyes that we read the word, it sets this kind of standard for moral purity, for the purity in our eyes, for sex outside of marriage, for gossip, for, and we say, ah, not important. I got other things to worry about. Have we made God too small in our eyes? We ask for forgiveness. We need to be forgiven. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness and we need help. Why don't we rise as we use this song and talk to God.
be magnified. Last song.
may give you a time to respond. You want to be humble, you want to hunger, and you want help. Then come to the one who give, who can give this to you. Come in the quietest recesses of your heart. Come to, if you wish, to step forward in that act of commitment and humility, repentance. Come whichever way you wish. To be humble, to be hungry, and to be helped. So I look at the few colors on that card. Pastor Kevin was talking about this morning the one that that really encourages me is the white colour that God will forgive us and whatever it is He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and not just that but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that when God looks at us He's not looking at how good you are what fantastic works of faith you have done, but he looks at a child cleansed and forgiven. And it's not 87%, it's 100% for the person who places his faith in the forgiveness of Jesus. And I pray that 100% of us here in this hall qualifies to go to heaven, not because we are so morally superior than everybody else but because of the grace of God the grace of God who reaches out to the humble who comforts the lowly who looks upon the humble estate of each one of us and is willing to give you help and if you are not hungry for him God is hungry for you God is just so desiring of reaching out and touching you and restoring our lives to set us upward, onward that path of holiness godliness so brothers and sisters let me encourage you with this that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the law of the spirit has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death sin has no hold over us because the Lord has sent His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us and that we do not walk anymore in the flesh but we walk according to the Spirit and all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God we did not receive the spirit of slavery to be slaves to our passions to fall back into fear but we have received the spirit of adoption and we can cry Abba Father and the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God 100% qualified for eternal life for heaven this is a God that we worship this is a God that we will we must respond to with a humble heart with a hungering heart and willing to be helped because apart from Him we can do we can't do anything
So Father God, thank you for your message to us. Thank you for even speaking into our lives, pointing out areas in our lives that are not holy before you. And so we confess. We acknowledge that you are right. That we indeed have made you too small in our eyes. And so forgive, Lord. That we have leaned on the wisdom of men. And so forgive, Lord. And as we see our wrong, would you heal our hearts and show yourself strong. Thank you that you indeed can do it. Do that in an instant. The forgiveness of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so we walk away from here with thankful hearts that we have met with a God who loves us, who forgives us, and who set us onward on a path that is onward and upward towards the high calling that you have placed before each one of us, that each one of us will then make conspicuous the grace that we have received, the love that we have received. There will be a moral revolution in our lives. And even as we live it out socially among our friends, there will also be that social revolution. Things are not the same anymore because God is with us. Thank you, our Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.